Hi there. Welcome to Joe's Table Alaska, where I explore the food industry in the interior region of the state of Alaska. Interior Alaska invites all types of agricultural interests, from farming, foraging, to ranching, and encourages entrepreneurs who are engaged in sustainable growing of all produce all year long, despite the many challenges of the cold weather in our state. Food security, sustainable farming, agriculture, and growing our own food. These are important issues for us in the interior of Alaska. This is where we live. This is where we raise families and work towards self-sufficiencies. In this podcast, I speak with farmers, foragers, ranchers, butchers, and also with people who are dedicated and helping year-round with the food security for those in our community who have the need. I speak with people engaged in growing vegetables, in growing flowers, beekeeping, mushroom foraging, and many, many other endeavors. These are people who embrace agriculture to produce the most essential ingredient for us and for our livelihood, food. I bring their challenges, their journey, and their stories to you. I'm Joe, and this is Joe Stable Alaska. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Denali State Bank. As a local community bank based in Fairbanks, Alaska, Denali State Bank believes in the importance of food security, self-sufficiency, and supports the homegrown agricultural-related activities that make food available, accessible, and most importantly, improves the quality of life for all Alaskans. Discover more at Denali State Bank. So my guest today is Brad St. Pierre. He is the manager at Tana Valley Farmers Market. He is also running Goosefoot Farms with his wife Christine, and he is actively engaged in organizations that promote agriculture in Alaska. He's a person of many talents. He's always in a good mood. I've never seen him not be in a good mood. And he is truly a steward for engaging people from across the board in ag-related activities to promote good solid agricultural culture in our state, especially in interior Alaska. So, Brad, welcome, and thanks for taking time to talk to me today. Yeah, I'm so excited. Chance I get to talk about agriculture, really. Yeah, I know. And, and, and I mean, you just mentioned as we were coming in that you have an important meeting tomorrow, and, uh, you know, you have the, the ear of the uh, Ag Secretary, is it? Uh, the Director of the Division of Ag. Director mm-hmm. of Division of Ag. Yeah, it's an amazing thing we have in this state. I feel like there aren't so many voices that are drowning out all the agricultural proponents. And so the state really listens well. Mm-hmm. And um, it's great that, uh, yeah, that the Division of Agriculture is attentive to the needs of farmers and the farmers' market. I hope it's a successful meeting that, that <laughs> both of you, you have. So uh, when I look at um, how was I going to have this conversation with you today, I, I certainly looked at three different segments to our talk today. Farmer's market, definitely a big part of, of what you do. Uh, your own farm, 
a big part of what you do, and and the third was your engagement with the, you know, different organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually the president of the board of the Alaska Farmers Market Association. We represent all 62 farmers markets across the state of Alaska. Right, it represents over 500 farmers. Yeah, so I saw that, and uh, looks like you guys are doing a lot of lot of work in that aspect. So I thought I'd divide our conversation today in in three, and and let's start with farmers market. Sure. So how long have you been with the farmers market? Well, um, I just finished my 10th season running the Tanana Valley Farmer's Market. It happened to be the Tanana Valley Farmer's Market 50th anniversary this year. Yes. Um, it's the longest continuously running farmer's market in the state. We are so blessed in this community to have such an established community gathering place. I, I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, uh, all the worker, all the farmers and uh, vendors that have come before me to build that space and state support as well to, to make that happen. So it's a, it's a special thing. You know, I really see farmers markets as the vehicle to strengthen community health connection and um, access mm-hmm. uh, to, to food and to connection. You know, I think farmers markets, people don't just go there to feed their bellies, but they go to feed their souls. Like it's an integral part of a healthy human existence to have that connection. Farmers markets, I tell people this often, um, that they're not high tech, but they're high touch. And that interaction yes. between you and the hands that grew your food or made your food is an incredibly valuable piece of what the farmers market brings. It also, for the farmers, um, there is no better outlet for their, their product because 100% of that sale goes right into the farmer's pocket. And um, there's no middleman, and, and you know that that quality that you're getting is the highest possible. So, yeah, for so many reasons, and, and also that the farmer's market is accessible to everyone. We have programs, so uh, we were just talking about the Alaska Farmer's Market Association and the things that we're doing. And one of, one of the programs that we have right now is we're doubling... WIC, Senior Farmers Market, Mm -hmm. and SNAP benefits at farmers markets across the state. So, um, for instance, the WIC program in past years, uh, folks got $25 to spend in their WIC checks that are specifically for farmers markets. And this year with the doubling, it was $40 um, for each beneficiary of that program. And with SNAP benefits, which is the the food stamp program, if you come with your, your SNAP card to the market and you put $40 on it, because of this program from the Alaska Farmers Market Association, we will give you $80 to spend at the market each day you come. And that's twice a week at our market. So if you think about that, you know, that's $320 a month that you can increase your benefits if you're shopping at the market, making products that are there half price. And And does it have to be just food or can they buy something else at the market too? So different... Different programs have different requirements. So the WIC and Senior Farmers Market is specifically for fresh produce. The Quest program, it's for any take-home food for that's for take-home consumption. So It's prepared food. Pre- not prepared food. So you can't go get, you know, Thai food, which we have amazing Thai food, and other <laughs> hot foods at the farmer's market. But you can get your baked goods and your sauces and your honey and uh, your vegetables, of course, okay. and fruits and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in 10 years that you have managed the market, what changes have you seen from, from year one to year 10? Oh, wow. I've seen an increase in popularity of the market. I've seen, I think, a change in general population's value of local products. I've also seen just more, I think the pandemic actually had a lot to do with uh, people finding their uh, swan song or what what they love to do mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. They had time at home, and so we've seen a, quite a few small businesses begin and come to the market. Another thing I've gotten to see is, you know, I, I see that 
the farmer's market for farmers is not an incubator for something greater that they're going to go to. Like this is a great place for them to arrive and stay. But for other types of small businesses, it's an incredible place to incubate new brick and mortar businesses around town. And in my last 10 years, there have been over six, I think seven now, businesses that began at the farmer's market that now have brick and mortar stores around town. So it's an amazing place for um, these new ideas and new entrepreneurs to begin their, the process of being a business in, in the Valley. Well, and it's such a gathering place, isn't it? I mean, Saturdays, I, I'm generally there Saturdays, and I'm sure Wednesday it's the same thing. But Saturdays, it just seems like, you know, it's a place where people meet each other and run into each other and there's a lot of conversation going on not just with me as a purchaser and 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 a farmer but just with people that are there at the same time as I am and uh, something that takes me uh, maybe five minutes to go purchase is now taking me an hour because I'm having a good time talking to people sure I mean it's an amazing thing to see the hugs, the connection, the people that I see it almost every day. It's like, I haven't seen you in 20 years and here you are. And how are you? And I even saw it in the middle of 2020 that summer, which we did not close. We stayed open the entire uh, year of 2020 and 2021, six feet away, people giving them each other hugs and connecting. Yeah. uh, That is a piece that um, is, is, it's hard to recreate anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's it's that sense of community that comes through and, and comes uh, through twice a week, you know, all summer long. All summer long. Yeah. Uh, in numbers, we do customer counts at the market on a regular basis. And uh, we had a day last summer where 7,200 people arrived on one Saturday. So if you think there's 80,000 people in the borough, nearly 10% of the entire borough came to that market in one day. So yeah. how do you do that? How do you count? the visitors. Yep. So we have a process where we have uh, an employee standing at the front, maybe two, and they stand at the front entrance for the first 20 minutes of every hour through the day and click anybody and everybody coming in. And then we do a little bit of math and multiply that for the next 40 minutes for that hour. So our employee's not there hundred percent of the time. Sure. And then, so we get that, uh, that number that way. That's pretty impressive. It is impressive. It's amazing that we can have that many people come in and out with the type of parking we have, um, <laughs> which I'm very excited to say next year we will have more parking. Which That's, is really, great. Yeah, That's great. That's awesome. great. You know, one of the changes that, that um, I noticed uh, since you took over is how we walk from, you know, a, a stall to stall. It's, it's easier. It's more manageable. The, the styles, if I can call it, yeah. uh, is, is more manageable. And also you've uh, incorporated some benches uh, so people can sit down. You know, I have an elderly mom. She just cannot walk that much, you know, so it's nice for her to just sit down. And the music that, that you've brought in, and yeah, it's a gathering place. It's a great place to meet people and go grab a bite to eat. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I do think it's an important piece the music and um if people are listening and they play music the farmer's market is the best place to come busk in fairbanks and yeah it's all summer long and uh come come find me if you want to come play some music yeah. do you feel that there's a shift in the proportion of vendors meaning those that are bringing produce and those that are doing arts and crafts mm-hmm and, and prepared foods. Um. It's uh, an issue we're facing across the country that the average age of farmers is increasing. Uh, currently, it's 64. What we've seen in our valley is a real attrition of farmers um, from 
aging out, from retiring, from moving on to other industries, the challenges facing new and beginning farmers in our valley, in our state, in the country. One of the greatest challenges is access to affordable land near city centers. And that is one of the major challenges that we see. So I have seen a shift in the amount of um, producers of produce at our market. When I got there, we had 21 farms. And this last year, we had 12 farms. Wow. In 10 years, it's almost half of our producers have moved moved on. Yeah. And, you know, we are seeing, you know, new and beginning. We have uh, a few farmers that are at our market right now that are within their first five years. And so, but it's, it's a challenge for sure. And, and it's um, interesting to me that, for example, greenhouse would come and, and not only do they bring their uh, produce, they will bring their uh, flowers and some shrubs as well, which is a perfect place to purchase those. But not all greenhouses do that. Yeah, every business has their plan and what works for them. And I definitely have seen over the years different greenhouses, larger greenhouses, attempt to be at the market. It's um, We have um, rules that um, keep the business sizes that are at our market at a certain scale. So we really want to keep it... Um, we have a metrics that um, we have all applicants go through. And our intention is to make it a place that if you have an off-site location and many employees and the owner isn't representing your business mm-hmm. at the market, you're probably too big to be at the market. Mm-hmm. And we really believe that that interaction with the hand that grew it is an important piece. Yes. And trying to keep ourselves true to that. So that impacts who comes as well. Do you have a board? We do. Here? Yep. We're organized as a nonprofit, and we have a board of nine um, volunteers, amazing, all all made up of vendors that are at the market. So, yeah. How often do you meet? Once a month. We have uh, every second Tuesday or second Wednesday of the month, they have a meeting. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's an amazing thing to see the the volunteer effort of that board and um, what they've created. That's great. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. Mm-hmm. So it's not just all on your shoulders, you know. Um. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> it mostly is. It's a one-man show over there uh, at the market, but, um, you know, we're, we're uh, making it through. You mentioned parking, and that seems to have been going on for years. That's, that's a challenge, right? I tell my vendors it's the best problem we could possibly have is that they're complaining about a full parking lot. Yeah. If it was an empty parking lot, I think I would get more complaints. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a half full, half empty perspective, right? So, 100%. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned next year it mm-hmm. will be different. So where are we going for parking? Sure. So um, the uh, I worked with Fast Planning and DOT over the last few years to have a crosswalk put into the plan at, that's going to be installed at the beginning of this uh, next season. It was actually could have gone in la- at the end of last summer, but there'll be a crosswalk right at Caribou Way crossing College Road with rapid flashing lights to increased safe access to the market and the market purchased a property directly across the caddy corner to the market's property currently across the street on uh on uh, caribou and uh college so okay there'll be increase of about 50 more spaces next year that's pretty nice yeah and people do park and and walk so it's nice that you have a crosswalk now definitely it's safer kept me up at night a couple times seeing families frogger across college road you know there's no safe place to cross College Road between the fairgrounds and the uni- and University Avenue. Yeah. And so this crosswalk, it won't just uh, benefit the farmer's market. It's going to help 
uh, all sorts of folks. There's brand new bus pullouts that are put in right there, and so people getting access to those bus places as well. What are some of the other issues that that your board deals with facilities-wise? I mean, uh, are the buildings uh, doing well, or do you have to now pay attention to them as well? You know, just like any infrastructure, they take upkeep, but um, things are in great shape. Uh, We have a building that we have was uh, funded by a state grant in 83, I want to say, or 84, and it was built, built well, built down at the fairgrounds. It was built well enough that we took the whole building apart and moved it down College Road to the property that we purchased where we're at now. And um, we're the only farmer's market in the state that has its own permanent property and building. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, so things are, uh, our blacktop is something that probably is going to get addressed here soon. Um, but um, just the state of the market is strong, for sure. Well, good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Is there, in your mind, a model I mean, you probably travel and look at other states and farmer's markets. When I travel, I go to farmer's markets. That's the first thing I do. Even internationally. Sure. You know, when I'm traveling, I go to farmer's market. Is there a a vision that you have that you say, okay, this is the model. I'd like to have that happen in the next five, six, eight, ten years. As I've been to so many farmers markets across the country, um, I, I, I know that each one caters to the needs of their specific community. And that's the beautiful thing about farmers markets is that they are really community based. No model that's working somewhere else is going to exactly fit with Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we have one of the best markets I've ever been to anywhere you go. I have an affinity for the Olympia Farmer's Market in Washington State. I, it's my first experience with farmer's markets. And as a as a farm worker, the farm I worked at sold there. And that market really has it together. And they have a beautiful, large building. And they have music all the time and a stage. And so we've definitely emulated some of the programs sure. that they have in Washington. At the Alaska Farmer's Market Association, we're close partners with the Washington State Farmer's Market Association. They've been great partners and helpful and been around for much longer than the Alaska Farmers Market Association has been. So the Farmers Market Association just put together a farmers market toolkit for people who are looking to start and begin and run current farmers markets or improve their farmers markets and resources in that toolkit came from all across the country. So taking the best of whatever we've seen. And, and who would you distribute that toolkit to? Anybody who's interested? Um, yep. So if people are interested in seeing an online version of that toolkit, it's at the Alaska Farmers Market Association's website, which is alaskafarmersmarkets.org. Under the resources tab, you're, um, there's no paywall. You're, we want that information out there as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Though the Farmers Market Association is looking for members, so if you want to sign up as a member, it's, there's no cost. We just uh, send us an email, and we'll put you on the, the member list, and then there's all sorts of benefits for uh, markets. So the Farmers Market Association doesn't just far- represent farmers markets. It also represents uh, farm stands, CSAs, food hub, and remote fresh um, specialty crop markets. Alaska, like I said, is like nowhere else. No, none of the same systems at a farmer's market or a state association are going to apply in Alaska as it does everywhere else. And so, for instance, the um, remote um, specialty food markets in villages, no matter if there's a producer locally uh, in that village or not, all all Alaskans need access to healthy, nutrient-dense, yes. fresh food. Whatever models it takes to get that to happen is really or into supporting direct-to-consumer sales. Um, uh, our farmer's market, mm-hmm. we're not the only farmer's market, right? So there's a few others uh, are at different times of the week or yep. different days of the week, I should say. Is there is there an opportunity there for more markets 
to pop up, you know. So the Calypso has theirs. Right. Should Goosefoot Farm, should they have theirs? I'm trying to understand the psychology behind how do these markets emerge and evolve and why not? Why doesn't everybody come to the same market? You know, I think what we see around the country is farmers markets in many neighborhoods all over the place and having close access to food. I mean, role that our farmers market fills is that we're in a food desert where we're at is that people are farther than a mile from uh, any local any food access having markets in other locations around town alleviates those food deserts and um, I feel like something that's really important for folks that think they want to start a farmers market or feel like their neighborhood needs a farmers market is that really it comes down to the farmer do the farmers need that is that going to work for the farmer so really a lot of the onerous a lot of times is put on the producer of like why aren't there more producers? Why isn't there more produce? It's like, well, it's as much to do with the consumer's desire for those things and, and responsibility to purchase them. But when it's in the construction or building of one of these um, markets, if it's not good for the farmer, it's not going to be good for the community. I think there's the obvious, the Southside Community Farmers Market, the Esther Community Market, the Goldstream Market, you know, they're filling roles in their, their communities and creating those gathering points. And for the producers that are selling there, it's good for them. So yeah, I think beautiful thing to think about what a farmer's market really means, and it means collaboration. So mm-hmm. a farm stand is one farmer selling the produce or the, the products that they grow. Mm-hmm. And a farmer's market is at least two farmers coming together to collaborate in the marketing of their product. And so I see the symbiosis as like the integral piece of what a farmer's market is. So it's important that we work together. There are over 62 markets serving local food to communities across the state. That's right. Last year, 19 markets reported 175,000 visitors. And this is statewide numbers, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that's amazing. It is incredible. Yeah, the, the, the growth in the in farmers markets over the last uh, 15 years has just been uh, astronomic. Um, yeah. And really what's driving that is Alaska leads the nation in new and beginning farmers. And these new and beginning farmers in Alaska, this, this number 21% increase that happened over the last um, USDA agricultural census, those farmers are primarily growing on less than nine acres and they're selling their produce direct to consumer through farmers markets, CSAs, and farm stands. And so because of this massive increase in new and beginning farmers around the state, we've seen the model Model that's working for them. I mean, I tell people this often too, is that the fastest way to lose a farmer is for them to go bankrupt. Yeah. And so what these farmers, these new and beginning farmers, a new and beginning farmer means someone who's been farming for less than 10 years, mm-hmm. just throwing mm-hmm. that out there, is that the direct consumer sales is what's financially viable for their farm. And so that's why we've seen this uh, increase in farmers. And um, I think also with participants, and we will continue to see more farms if we can figure out this land access um, issue and as well change purchasing habits of consumers. If every Alaskan went to their local farm stand, got a CSA or went to the farmer's market first before they went to a box store to do their purchases, I'm not I'm not deluded that you can find everything that you're looking for at the grocery store at the farmer's market. It's not the case. It's not what we're made for. But if that would happen, the demand on local producers would increase, their ability to risk producing more would decrease, so the production would increase. The young people seeing that it's a financially viable vocation to be a small producer in your local town and sell locally will increase the amount of farmers going forward, especially if they know that they have access to land. So yeah, once again, one of those symbioses. The the grocery stores are different today than they were 48 years ago when, mm-hmm. when I came here oh, as, as a teenager. And I've mentioned in my previous podcast, my family moved 
from India. And uh, my mother was uh, regularly extremely challenged by the lack of produce. Mm -hmm. Coming from India, where, you know, you got fresh produce all the time, every day. Um, they brought it to your door. Mm -hmm. And here, she didn't have that. So that was in early 70s. And um, now, of course, it's a different scene. There's a lot of different varieties of produce in, in uh, uh, grocery stores. I often wonder if there is collaboration uh, or a business relationship where our stores, and I'm not talking about roaming route, I'm not talking about co-op, I'm talking about the big boxes. Mm -hmm. Are they reaching out? to the local farmers and saying, we're going to buy some of your stuff? Or is that very rare? Now, if you walk into these big box stores now, you'll see a whole lot of local produce um, signs uh, talking about Northwest produce because they see that customers more so now than ever value knowing the source of their food. Yeah. What the big box stores aren't focused on is the economic um, prosperity of each community that they're in. When you spend your dollar at the farmer's market, it's spent with a local business. Um, research shows that a local dollar spent locally can be spent up to 16 times in a community before it leaves. Every dollar you spend at Fred Meyers or Safeway, the moment you spend it there, it leaves Fairbanks. It goes to corporate headquarters. What big box stores, and we did a, a market survey I want to say in 2018 or 2017, they would buy local produce if it was available, but they would only buy it at the price that works for them. And that's comparable to the price of what they're bringing in from other places. The reason produce is so cheap from other places is that farm workers are not cared for. Um, they're working for very low wages in not great housing conditions without health care. And if that's the system that you're looking to support, and that's what you are supporting. And if you're looking to support a strong low economy and nutrient-dense local food, and like I said earlier, for these size farmers, you can't take pennies on the dollar for your work. Yeah. They deserve to get yeah. the whole dollar. No, totally understandable. And, and good to know, you know, that when I see the sign local, it doesn't mean our local. No. Uh, it, it means local somewhere else. So what what's next other than parking and, and looking at uh, Blacktop? Mm -hmm. uh, what What's next with our farmer's market that you should look forward to? Well, I, I'd like to see the expansion of food access programs at our market. Uh, they, we've been partnering with Stone Soup to do chef demonstrations at yes. the market um, yes. monthly. I would love to see that there was something like that weekly to educate people on how to use the food that they can find at the market. Something that's really excited that started in 2022 that we also did this last year that I would love to see continue and expand as we do a children's market once a month where we have children grow or make things and come up with their business name and come to the market and get to sell, hopefully encouraging the next generation of vendors at our markets. And, and then I think really, I hope to see in the next 10 years, more producers of local produce and more people coming to the market looking for that. Yeah. Um, I think those are the things we're working towards. And I think there's all sorts of benefits that come from those steps that if we have that, then we have a uh, a stronger community base and connection here in Fairbanks. So something like uh, Proposition 2 hmm. that, that we were just, mm -hmm. um, you know, benefited by, I would say, is a great thing, right? You know, anything that the state or the borough can do mitigate challenges to new and beginning farmers, to farmers that are currently farming, if that's what we value, mm. we give tax breaks to the things we value because mm -hmm. that is the tool that the borough and the state have. And um, so, yeah, Prop 2, 
If you don't know what it is, is uh, we had a ballot measure on the ballot in October that would exempt farm structures that are used for the production of food uh, from borough taxes. Um, there's agricultural land exemptions, which is a percentage um, that if you produce over 10% of your total income from agriculture, you get a percentage off of the land that you're using. But for these small and beginning farmers or small farmers that are farming on less than nine acres, the ones I was speaking of that great increase, the largest cost tax-wise to those businesses isn't for the land because they're on small parcels. It is the infrastructure, it's the yeah. root cellars, it's the greenhouses, it's the barn. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, amazing thing to have any measure on a ballot in our community pass with 78% of support. Yes. That was, I think, the biggest statement that our community supports farmers and local agriculture. And um, yeah, it's, it's a very exciting. Does that exclude greenhouses that uh, grow vegetables? So they would not exclude them. It would only apply to the infrastructure that is being used for the production of food, so not the yeah. ornamentals and flowers and things like that. So um, so they still get a little benefit. Th- they might if they have yeah. infrastructure that's dedicated to the production of food. Yeah. Well, it's it's good news. Yeah, uh, we still have some work to do. We have a Prop 2 working group that's going to get together and hopefully work with some of the assessors to make sure everything's clear. And really the purpose behind this is to support farmers that are growing yeah. food. So we just wanted to make sure it does that. So let's uh, shift gears a little bit and uh, go to your own farm, Mm -hmm. uh, Gooseford Farm. The the first thing that caught my attention was uh, the sentence that says, Gooseford Farm is a local diversified vegetable farm in Fairbanks, Alaska. Mm -hmm. And I said, I wonder how Brad defines diversified. Is it because it's diversity in what you grow or is there some other meaning that you would attach to? When we're talking about diversity at the farm, it's definitely the diversity of the things we grow. Okay. Um, yeah, and we, uh, we try to use practices. So our, our paradigm at Goosefoot is that we don't just use soil as a growing medium, that actually the soil, topsoil, and that it rains is the only reason humans are on this earth and that we are alive. And so our charge is to uh, make it the healthiest soil that we possibly can. And by using a diverse amount of crops and using rotation and cover crops is the way with with this climate that we have found to be not just taking from that soil, but be building it. And both you and your wife have um, agricultural education and background. Yep, we have um, agricultural background. My wife is actually the real farmer of the two of us. She has a degree in ecological agriculture from Evergreen State. And I was uh, studying art and working on farms while she was studying. My wife has been working in agriculture or studying agriculture for the last 22 years, and I've been doing it for the last 16. Goosefoot started in 2013, so 10 years in, we've really started to catch our stride and found our people. And um, How large a farm is it? acreage wise. Sure. So currently the total property that we are at right now is 75 acres um, of which we do about two and a half close to three acres in produce. Um, We actually just fenced another seven acres uh, with intention to expand and then we have about 20 acres in hay about a half an acre of an orchard as mm-hmm. well. Do a lot of people do hay? Uh, there's still people doing hay. Uh, it's fewer and fewer. There's fewer and fewer horses, working horses um, or, or animals. Um, and a lot of hay fields that used to be hay fields are now houses uh, mm-hmm. around Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. And something that people found a long time ago is that if it's a cleared field, it usually has a nice view. And so those properties, actually the value has gone up. And um, so if you drive down Farmer's Loop, you don't see a whole lot of big fields anymore, just yeah. a couple. And that whole road was... Uh, 
solid farms at one point. So yeah, hay is a is a challenging crop to grow. Um, yeah, it's a somewhat schizophrenic for a produce grower to also be growing hay because we kind of want opposite weather for the two crops. So how many people are employed at your farm? Uh, zero. Um, it's just you my, and my wife and myself. And, um, and you're doing all of the work on the farm. Yeah. Um, our, our real push is to mechanize as much as possible, to make our systems as efficient as possible, to focus on the crops that we, we do well, that grow well on our soil. And um, we have hired staff in the past, probably will in the future, but currently it's just my wife and I doing the production. And it's manageable. Well, it depends on what you consider manageable. <laughs> well, I always see you smiling. Yeah, you know. Um, I, and I've seen her at, at, at the farmer's market, too. And uh, I, I mean, it goes without saying, this is hard work, right? It is hard work. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are working really hard during that season. Uh, so what, what makes you get up in the morning and say, we're going to do it again today? Uh, and you have no help, just the two of you. Yeah, you know, what gets me up in the morning is that um, I see I want to be the change that I want to see in my community. I believe the work I do, that we believe the work that we do is activism. And that um, the activism that I and my wife are participating in is in the field and not on the street, but as feel it is as impactful as that. Yeah. It's a lifestyle choice. And I believe that one of the most difficult things in life is to slow it down. Growing food with your hands in the soil, you get connected to the pace of the season. I mean, I wouldn't say that summer times in Alaska are slow, but I would say that um, we are connected to that that progression, that natural progression of, of the seasons with the work we do. It gives me much pleasure as a father. I have two young children um, that my job, though many hours, and maybe it's a 20-hour day, I'm not far away from them. They're not yes. necessarily right on the tractor with me, but they're right over there playing in the mud. We're stopping for dinner every day and eating together. Um, I, would, I would contend that I've probably spent more time with my children than most adult males in the United States because of the time that I'm at the sure. farm with them. Sure. Yeah. So these are values that we hold that um, and you know that it doesn't hurt that I love to eat and <laughs> I really love good food. And yeah. let me tell you, we eat better than anybody at yeah. the farm. Um, when your season starts, which month of the year? I mean, you don't, do you have greenhouses or do you do everything outside? We have greenhouse um, and high tunnels. Um, starting our seeds is when we'd say starting our, our season is like end of March, middle of March, depending on uh, what crops we're doing that year. Um, and those are that's still inside under lights until those um, early season or long season crops get established well enough. And then we start moving things out to the greenhouse in April. And so um, really the pace begins in April, goes solid into the middle of October. Do you have challenges that you have encountered in your years of farming? Oh, so many. Still to this day, I am a landless farmer. I do not own the ground that I'm on. We started Goose Foot with a whole lot of experience and a whole lot of passion and a dream. But uh, something that you get working on farms is that experience. But what you don't get is paid much. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have much money. So we did an Indiegogo campaign for startup costs our first year. And the community funded us. And we leased five acres, built fences, dug ponds, made a field, no power, no access to water, just by brute determination. Sure. And then five years into being on that property, we had to move the farm. And so all those greenhouses, tunnels, tractors, infrastructure, walk-in coolers had to get up, pick up, and move to another piece of ground. I would say that was a challenge. Um, That's a big challenge. And and is that because your lease was up or you, you, they didn't want to renew it or what happened there? 
Yeah, you know, just um, details of dealing with landowners that have different yeah. perspective. Also, a, we, a, a great, a good opportunity, a, an opportunity we couldn't turn down right. arose. The primary reason yeah. was that we felt that we had. So do you essentially start all over again? Um, well, not all over again. You know, we already had, at that point, built a market. And we had uh, CSAA members. We had uh, people that came to our stand at the market. Um, we had, you know, five more years of experience with the soil. But from one side of the valley to the other, the soil's not the same. Exactly. And things that grow well yeah. at one farm don't grow well on the other. Yeah. And so it wasn't a total the, the beginning, but it was a big reset for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, we changed the crops. We changed what infrastructure we were using. And um, yeah, so those are challenges. I mean, there's challenges every day, every year. There's something that's going to fail. There's a crop that's not going to do well. And one of the things that this diversified farming does for the farmer, farming is a risky business. If you went to a bookie and were like, hey, I'm going to risk my entire livelihood for the year on the weather, they wouldn't give you those odds. They mm -hmm. wouldn't take that bet. Super risky. But the diversified crop, we have tw we do about 27 different varieties or, or types of vegetables on the farm and fruit. And if one of those 27, the whole thing goes, we still have 26 things that might do well. And so that mitigates that risk a lot for us. And every year we have something that doesn't do well. It's, it's I mean, one year we got our onion sets out and we got out there and had a couple employees and we planted 10,000 onions in one day, all out in the field, looking beautiful, nice and clean and planted. If you ever planted onion sets, the first day you put them in, they kind of lay down. They don't mm -hmm. quite stand mm -hmm. up until those roots get into the soil. Well, that night it frosted. And onions are usually tolerant to frost, but not when they're laying down. So their little necks all got frozen and we lost 10,000 onions oh, in boy. one night. But you know what? That year was our best year up until that point at the end of the season, despite that huge loss, because we had all these other crops and the ability to pivot and yeah. use that space for something else. So there's always challenges to you farming. You grab yourself by your it's boots and... Crying's not going to bring them back. Back. Say, yep, yeah, let's just move on. That's right. Yeah. I noticed the the list of uh, produce and, and the variety. So I'm assuming that that's not really season specific. You do experiment in, in that season too. You may or may not grow all those vegetables that you have listed on your website. I, we will try every year to be growing all of those. <laughs> and do you add new Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this year we did an experiment that worked out very well doing, growing dry beans uh, at our farm. And that oh. might be a product you see. Yeah, things like that are pretty exciting for a farmer to, to try something new and it works. Because you try a lot of new things and there's a reason they're not being grown. Once your season winds down, and I'm assuming it's sometimes in fall, what activities do you have to do now in preparation for next year? Well, uh, I'd say first is rest. Uh, we don't get a whole lot of that in the summertime. Um, catch up on sleep, get the kids back into swim lessons and skiing and sure. all the things you do as, yeah. a, as a parent. But um, I mean, seed catalogs are already arriving and it's the end of November. And so our seed order will be gone, be done, put in in the next few weeks for mm -hmm. next year. Um, mm -hmm. I've already spent a month or so in the shop fixing a lot of the stuff that broke this summer. Mm -hmm. And then there's always, you get these great ideas midsummer. Um, farmers are such next year people. You're like, <laughs> oh, but next year I'm going to do it like this. And so I'm a big, big list maker. So I have all these like, well, next year I'm going to weld this thing up and I'm going to have this tool and I'm going to make this. So um, that's what yeah. we do in the wintertime. And we also get a little bit of traveling in. Good. I mean, the seasonality of what we do is a big piece of that lifestyle choice and um, 
yeah, I enjoy the, the slow pace of the winter. And I tell people all the time, I'm not a marathon runner. I'm a sprinter. I can yeah. run really fast for a short period of time. And then I need to stop and rest and recuperate. One reason we decided to farm in Alaska and not somewhere else is that the seasons are so pronounced yeah. that we do get some downtime. And and your wife was born and raised here. Mm-hmm. And so it's good for her to be home. Oh, it's good for all of us. I don't think yeah. it would be possible for us to do what we do without the support of her family that's here in town. What do you think about, and this may kind of, you know, transition into your work with with the agricultural folks in producing healthy, nutritious food, but what do you think about the fact that 95% of our food is coming from outside and we are able to grow only five, and then this whole food security issue, this food storage problems and sustainability. Now we're trying to have um, in the villages programs. Um, it To me, as an outside person, I'm not in that industry. I'm just a consumer. Mm-hmm. I'm looking and saying, there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of people, a lot of agencies. There's a lot of uh, community gardens. There's plots and schools. So much is going on. How is that not helping, you know, to move that percentage from five to six to seven. So I'm, I'm interested in, in what you as a person in that industry think about that, because from the outside, it seems like there's a lot of work going on. Yeah, there's a lot of work going on. I think it's we're moving a very large boulder. Um, we are behind it, and it, it takes a lot of effort to move it just a little. We are definitely gaining momentum. And that's what happens when there's enough leverage being pushed on a big problem. And I have seen over the last 10 years that the momentum of rolling over from this perception that cheap food is very valuable to Alaskans to healthy local food that gives us security in at the end of a very fragile distribution system is becoming more valuable. But I do think it takes a lot of partners get because everybody's coming at it from a different viewpoint. Some people want to see they're they're looking at local food as um, for health benefits, other people for soil benefit. Why has that not increased? Well, I would I would say it's probably due to these challenges that are facing new and beginning farmers and not only access to land, but education. Where's the university in educating the next group of farmers? Where's that ag program Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. well funded? My wife is an example of that when she decided in high school that this is what she wanted to do. She wanted to grow produce for Fairbanks. She didn't feel she could get the knowledge she needed here. So she went to Washington State to a school that had a working organic farm to learn ecological agriculture. This town is very fortunate she decided to come back and yes. to do it here and not somewhere else. I think our children don't see farming as a viable vocation. They're not educated in the fact that it can be a, a job, a, a career that you'll make enough, send your kids to college and be successful. I, I think these are things that we need to change to change that number. And and yeah, so th- there are a lot of moving parts. Um, but I think as much as it's the producers it's the consumers. Consumer, you're voting with your dollar every time you spend it first at Fred Meyers, as opposed to seeking out the roaming route, seeking out the co-op, because you can still get local produce right now, even though the farmer's markets close at these local stores. Um, there's winter CSAs. There's mushroom CSAs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's these things, it's these, these consumer practices of eating seasonally, preserving, canning. Last night, I had broccoli from the farm. Well, it wasn't cut yesterday, but in August, when we had 900 pounds of broccoli, one week, we put 50 pounds in the freezer, blanched and froze it. And we blanched and froze that much cauliflower and green beans. And we have a root cellar and we have cabbage and potatoes and beets and 
onions and if more of our consumers in the summertime change their practices of eating to the seasonal storage thinking about what the effort it takes on their part to make that change, I see. I think we would see that number fluctuate much quicker. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really the onus is on consumers to consume in a way that supports the type of agriculture, not expecting to see a tomato in February, not to see avocados in your diet every week. Um, it's, it's about eating seasonally and eating locally, and that takes effort. But let me tell you, it takes less effort than it does to the producer. The producer is putting way more effort into the fact that that produce is there. I, th- I think it is necessarily the consumer's responsibility to put the effort into it to change that. So, so we play our part. A huge part. Right. We play our part so that, uh, and it's beneficial to us, right? I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, what, what, what we would purchase is bad for us. It's actually very good for us, maybe better than what we could have purchased it somewhere else. So I, I get that. But do you also think that all of us, whether we are good at it or mediocre at it, that we should try to grow something for our own families? Maybe not 900 pounds of, you know, broccoli or or cauliflower, because where would we put it? But should we have this interest in growing for our own family and start growing? There are people who tell me that people should convert their front lawns into gardens mm-hmm. and, and start growing things for mm-hmm. for themselves. It's good for them. It, it you know helps the food security issue. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's happening. Is it's it probably did 50, 60, 70 years ago because mm-hmm. we didn't have grocery stores with so much available. Mm-hmm. So people were forced to grow their own. Should we go back to doing that? I don't think it's possible. I think it's a pretty privileged place to be that you have space to grow, that you have a big front yard, that you have a big backyard, that you have a garden. I think it's a wonderful thing yeah. for people to grow food for themselves. But not everybody can do it. I, not everybody can do it. I think um, a lot of people... They would love to have that privilege, to have the space, to have the time, to have... But also, you can grow a lot of food in a small amount of space. And I think it's important for everybody to grow some food. And you can grow a lot of food in just in containers on your your balcony at your apartment. If you... Just to... To have that connection to it, I think increases desire to have that fresh local. But I don't think that's the way that we're going to change the number from 95% of our food imported. Gardening is about peace and serenity and some food. And farming is about efficiency, profit, and a whole lot and tons of food. We need those efficient systems if we're actually going to feed a whole lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can't expect that everybody's going to have the ability or time to grow their own food or experience. And, And I think that something is lost in translation that anybody can be a farmer. Anybody can go out and grow things. You just put a seed in and it grows, but actually it takes a whole lot of experience and knowledge. It's not unskilled labor to be able to produce well, for things to grow well, and uh, and for you not to, to hurt the soil, to, to continue to build that soil. So I think it's important. I think it's wonderful. I think all children should be around food that's growing and know that fresh food tastes better. I think that would change our purchasing and, and eating habits going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do think it, it's going to come down to producers that are producing more than just for themselves. If we're going to change, we're going to change that number from 95% imported food. Mm-hmm. And people's habits have to change. A hundred percent. So it's not just that you shop at the farmer's market. It's that you shop at the farmer's market and you buy 50 pounds of beets and you go home and can them. You take that cabbage and you make kraut, figure out a way with a neighbor who's got a big garage that you guys can store your food over the winter in that it doesn't freeze. So you ha- you go buy 100 pounds of potatoes. You, you do these things. It's a, it's a way of eating Yeah. Um, that's seasonal and, and understanding that you're not going to be pulling potatoes out in January 
and you want to have potatoes at Christmas dinner. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you said earlier that you're not in this industry, but you are in this industry. Every person is in the food industry. You know, you need a doctor once a year. You need a lawyer if you're lucky once or twice in your life. You need a farmer three times a day, every day. And um, we as a community need to value, put more value. Yeah, in I what agree. That, I agree. And, and I stand corrected because you're right. I'm uh, a participant in this industry. I'm, I'm not a producer, right. but I am a participant in this industry. And, and uh, I, I think if more people understood that, they, they might be inclined to, to do some of the, or make the changes that you and I are talking about, you know, today. But, but that's the purpose of what we're doing. 100%. You know? I mean, if yeah. you don't talk about it, people don't yeah. think about it. That's you right. Know? Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it isn't uh, within their mindset. Because, they, you know, nobody's talking about it. As a it. farmer, it's right in front of my face every day. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So so this has been great. Great conversation. I love what you're doing at the farmer's market. And I would love to visit your farm. I'd love to see what is it that you and Christine are doing. And that there's more support from different sectors of our economy. Not just the consumers, but you mentioned the university. We need to get things that are working collaboratively together to move that needle and and that's at least my outside perspective yeah take know. take a lesson from the farmer's market it's a uh, rising tide raises all boats yeah. we're all working together we're all our own businesses but we come to one place and it's supporting each other ourselves and our community and it's with that intention of collaboration yeah it's been really nice thank you very much i appreciate all your time and and what you do for our community um and and the farmer's market is just a brilliant place so Thank you. Um, it's my uh, absolute pleasure. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you so much. You can find this episode on Podbean, Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. My deep gratitude to my group of supporters. You know who you are. To Andrew Heckman for writing the beautiful music for this podcast. And to the folks at Denali State Bank. Their commitment to local enterprise, community, and to supporting the emerging sustainable food growing industry is unparalleled. The success of our community is their success. I hope you join me as I continue to explore agricultural and food issue in interior Alaska. Thank you. <laughs>